Hello and welcome to the Runecast. Uh, I'm Maya Ekwal, this is episode 3, and this time I'm going to be talking about the younger Futhark and Runestones in particular. And there's actually no interview this time, it's just me. As you probably remember, there are different runic alphabets, uh, or Futharks as we call them. And in uh, the previous episodes, I focused on the earliest inscriptions, which are written in the older Futhark, and so this episode we move into the younger Futhark. The dates usually set for the use of the younger Futhark are about 800 to 1100, and this leads me to one of my pet peeves. Because 800 to 1100 happens to coincide almost exactly with the period that's usually called the Viking Age. Um, as an aside, I'm going to use the term Viking Age here, although, like with any other period you define, it's a debated term. But right now, I mainly want to point this out. In a lot of, if not most, popular culture featuring Vikings, the runes that you'll see are the older Futhark. And this is almost by definition wrong. The younger Futhark is the Viking Age Futhark. I love all runes, but I do not understand why people cling to the older Futhark, even when they're trying to be historically accurate in everything else. I know there are Viking reenactors that listen to this podcast, and I'm so happy about that. It's fantastic. I think reenactment is a really important part of understanding the past. Could I suggest, if you use runes as a Viking reenactor, use them sparingly, and use the younger Futhark, because it's the Viking Age Futhark. Thank you. You're all really cool. With that being said, moving on to actually talking about what this Futhark is, the younger Futhark is basically a revision of the older. Uh, there seems to be a pretty clean break around 800. Um, we do have inscriptions that use runes from both Futharks, but we don't have any inscriptions that are in complete mix. Mainly what happens is you'll see the old A rune hanging around for a while, and a few others. So it's not a gradual shift. The impression you get is kind of a centrally made decision, followed by a quick rollout. Who made this decision? Where centrally is, is anyone's guess. But just like we talked about with introduction of runes, it doesn't seem to arise organically. You get the feeling it comes from the top down. So in this revision, uh, many runes stay the same, while others are modified, and several simply disappear or are removed. One of the main differences is the number of runes in the Futhark. You go from 24 in the older Futhark to 16 in the younger. You'll sometimes see people talk about the 24-character Futhark and the 16-character Futhark rather than the older and the younger. So some of the runes that fall out of use are runes that represent sounds that are no longer in the language. Um, for example, the sound w goes through some sound changes and more or less disappears. And that means you have no need for a rune to represent w anymore. It's not an important sound in the language. So if you remember, there's a rune that looks a bit like an I with hooks on the ends, and we don't really know what the sound value of that was. It isn't used a lot in inscriptions at all. And that disappears as well. So this is a kind of streamlining of the older Futhark that's going on. But 
Going from 24 to 16 runes um, doesn't mean that there are only 16 sounds in play in Viking Age Scandinavian. Um, instead, what happens is that many of the runes represent more sounds than one. Uh, for example, where the older Futhark had distinct runes for T and D, or for T and D, um, the younger one only retains the T rune, and then that rune stands for both T and D. You get the same thing with the K rune, which stands for both a K and a G sound, and the Thorn rune, the Th rune, which is both a Th and a Th sound. And you might recognise these as being pairs of unvoiced, unvoiced consonants. So it's not a random pairing of consonants that go into this representation. It's the voiced D and the unvoiced T that go in under a T form rune. The V sound is divided between two runes, so it can either be represented in the same voiced and unvoiced fashion as the ones I just mentioned, uh, by the F rune, so you get a F, which is the unvoiced, and a V, which is the voiced of the same. Uh, but you can also see it written with the U rune, which I think is more common, but don't quote me on that. Just like the consonants, the vowels are not what they seem. Even less so, actually. Each vowel in the younger Futhark can stand for several vowel sounds and diphthongs. Uh, if you remember from episode 1, uh, I talked about how tricky it can be to transliterate modern language into runes. And with the younger Futhark, it's even harder than with the older, because there are fewer runes for the same amount of sounds. And, and when I think about it, I think that might be one of the reasons for um, why pop culture prefers the older Futhark and why people prefer to try to write their names in the older Futhark. It's just slightly more accessible. You'd think that this makes uh, younger Futhark inscriptions harder to read as well, and in a way that is the case. Um, you can often get several interpretations that are equally likely. The good thing about the younger Futhark inscriptions is that we have so many more of them. So we have much more language preserved, which means we get a better picture of it, making interpretations much easier. Of course, we're also time-wise closer to the Middle Ages, where we start having longer texts preserved in manuscripts. And so there's not as much guesswork going on as you get with the older inscriptions. You don't have to reconstruct words. You might just have that from a couple of hundred years later in a manuscript, and you know basically what the word is. So why do we have many more inscriptions from the Viking Age? What's the bulk of the corpus? It's runestones, is the short answer. Um, as we talked about last time, uh, there are runestones in the older Futhark. Um, what happens in the Viking Age is that Scandinavia has a runestone boom. And the one stone that is usually credited with starting this boom is a Danish stone, uh, the younger Yelling stone. It was commissioned by Harald Bluetooth, uh, technically in memory of his parents, but also very much in memory of himself. Uh, and I say the younger Yellingstone because it's erected next to the older Yellingstone, which is a smaller and less elaborate runestone that was commissioned by Harald's father, Gormer, in memory of his wife, Harald's mother, Thyrve. 
Um, the older Yelling Stone is dated to about 950 and the younger to about 965. So Yelling itself uh, is a very small village in central Jutland in Denmark. It's really a must-see for anyone who's interested in this time period. The village itself isn't very interesting, but mm, the monuments. Um, apart from these two beautiful, beautiful stones, um, there are two huge burial mounds. The burial mounds and stones used to belong to a complex of monuments that included an enormous stone ship setting that went around one of the mounds and a palisade that went around the entire area. Uh, and nowadays, these are marked out. You can get a feeling for the area and there's a, I'm told, a beautiful museum. I haven't actually been to the new museum, but it's really worth a visit if you're in Denmark. Now, the inscription on the younger Yangstone that started the whole runestone boom. It goes as follows in my reconstructed way of speaking this language. Haraldr Konungir Badgarua Kambilthasi eft Gorm Father Sin, Okeft Thorui Mother Sina, Sa Haraldr Esservan Danmark Alla Ok Norway, Ok Danigerdi Kristna. So if your Viking Age Danish isn't really what it should be, uh, who's this? Um, here's the translation of that uh, from the Nordic Runetext database. King Haraldr ordered these monuments made in memory of Gormr, his father, and in memory of Thirve, his mother. That Haraldr, who won for himself all of Denmark and Norway, and made the Danes Christian. The words in themselves are not enough to understand what this runestone is doing, really. The inscription runs around three sides of a huge block of stone, underneath beautiful illustrations that are cut in relief. So in the inscription I just read, from... King Haraldr ordered this monuments made in memory of his parents, and he won all of Denmark. That's one side. Then on the next side you get basically and Norway, and then on the third side, and made the Danes Christian. It's been pointed out that the layout compared to earlier runestones, and also actually compared to later runestones, is a lot more like pages in an illuminated manuscript than it is your classic runestone, in that the text runs from left to right with an illustration of what would be an illumination above it. And this makes quite a lot of sense. This is an international runestone. This is a runestone that's showing off a lot of learning. It's showing off a lot of wealth and status. Uh, and it's very modern. It's a very new thing for its time. Danish runestones, both kind of before and after this, uh, tend to just be lines of text and often run uh, vertically on the stone rather than horizontally. So on the first side you have the most text, as you heard, and with some ornamentation above it. On the side that mentions Norway, most of that side is taken up by a four-legged creature, usually called a lion. And finally, on the side that says, and made the Danes Christian, you have this large Christ image, which is quite famous. Uh, there are images of this on the podcast website, including a reconstruction of how it may have been painted. Now, this is a gorgeous, costly piece of propaganda, branding. Christianity 
of course, did not come to Denmark through the work of one single king. And we know people were Christian in Scandinavia before this. But Haraldr is taking the credit. And he's also at the same time declaring Denmark, whatever he exactly meant by Denmark at this point, to be Christian. And this is a running theme for Viking Age runestones. They are Christian. The runestone boom is part of the Christianization of Scandinavia as the religion moves north. And this seems to especially catch on around the year 1000 in Sweden, what is now Sweden, and especially in the part of Sweden where I'm sitting right now, Uppland. Uh, Uppland is the region just north of Stockholm. Maybe the Swedes and the Upplanders were extra hyped for the new religion. Uh, maybe it was the other way around. Maybe you need to put in some extra effort to show your neighbours that you were really Christian. It could also have been a cool trend in a country that has a lot of stone lying around. Probably all of the above. Whatever the reason, what is now Sweden really goes for the runestones in the 11th century. As a comparison, uh, Norway has 50 to 80 runestones or so. Wonderful, wonderful runestones. Denmark has a respectable 250-ish. And Sweden has 2,500 and out of these, about a thousand have been found in Uppland. So, come to Uppland, ruined country. I'm not even kidding, they're everywhere. <laughs> so when I say they're Christian, it's actually pretty obvious that they are. Most of them have crosses as ornamentation. Uh, many have prayers, and a lot of them have both. And this is actually something I find that a lot of people are surprised by. Probably because runes and runestones are heavily associated with some kind of pagan magic and 10,000 quote marks. Uh, the truth is that the vast majority of runic inscriptions that we have are explicitly Christian. And this is, of course, be partly because runestones survive much better than small objects and charms and things like that. Um, but the fact, that we, the fact is, we have a lot of Christian monuments written in runes. Because, as you'll hear me say over and over again, runes are not inherently magic, they're a writing system used for writing in the vernacular, and that's what's happening here. With that being said, though, proclaiming your Christianity isn't the only reason for erecting a runestone. They're memorial stones, which means that they most often commemorate someone who's dead, but they're not gravestones because they're not connected to a grave, they're not erected over a grave. It happens, but it's very rare. They seem to often have been placed next to roads and waterways, which makes a lot of sense if you want people to see them, which you obviously do. You're putting in a lot of time and effort and probably money to make them. And they're also placed on the borders quite often between different people's lands. So they seem to have acted as a kind of border marker as well. And because they most often mention the relationships between the people in the inscription... And because some of these relationships can be pretty complicated, um, runestones could have been a kind of inheritance document. I'm personally not convinced that this is as central of a purpose as some scholars think. Of course, the, the truth is, as often, is it's, it's a mixture of all this. It's a border marker and an inheritance document. It's a memorial for someone loved by a family. It's not just, look, here's how cool my family is. 
The individual who commissions a runestone has any number of reasons for doing so. There seems to be a, a theme of status and ownership, wealth and Christianity going into it. And of course, which I think actually gets forgotten a bit too often, the personal relations to people that are now dead that you want to memorialize. So a thing that makes these 11th century runestones stand out among Rurik inscriptions is that they're actually pretty easy to read. And the reason for this is that they're very formulaic. Because there's a standard way of constructing a runestone inscription at this time, and basically all 11th century runestones follow this standard. So if you're making a runestone, the basic formula you need goes like this. X had this stone made in memory of Y, their relation. So what you get on the younger Yerialing stone that I read before, uh, you have King Harald that ordered these monuments made in memory of Gormer, his father, and in memory of Theodore, his mother. So King Harald makes something for his parents and also tells you that they are his parents. So it can be several people who commissioned the runestone uh, and or several people commemorated. This is the basic formula. Once you have this, you're good to go. But you can also add other things if you have the inclination, the money, the space on the stone. You may want to say something about the deceased. For example, he was a good farmer, or she led the household well, that kind of thing. You might want to highlight how or where they died. Uh, he died in the east, they both drowned. Uh, some runestones give information on where they lived, which may have to do with what I was talking about before with inheritance and landowning. Uh, this is a wonderful source for anyone working with place names. This extra information goes after the basic formula. After this extra information, a runestone commissioner can put a prayer. Uh, the most common ones you see are usually God help his or her spirit, or God and God's mother help his or her spirit. You see some variations on this. Um, the archangel Michael occurs in some prayers, for example. Uh, and finally, at the very end, after any prayers you want to put there, you can find a carver's signature. This is most often the form of X carved, or X carved the stone, or X made the runes, something along those lines. It's always at the end of the inscription. And this is also a wonderful source because you can track certain carvers by looking at their various uh, signed monuments, uh, you can also attribute unsigned monuments to certain carvers if you know some of their quirks and spelling or rune shapes and things like that. So there are a number of quite well-known rune carvers in Scandinavia, Erbir, Osmundr, Livstein, for example. And they have a style and you can recognise it. So as formulaic as runestones are, they give us quite a lot of information about things like names, social structures, you get religion, you can even get a bit of history. So they're a wonderful source in themselves. And in their time, the runestones were most likely painted. We have some finds from the church in Sjöping on the island of Öland, uh, in the east, southeast of Sweden, where we still have paint intact, uh, which is very rare. So the colours are mainly red, black and white, and they're used both on the ornamentation but also on the runes themselves, um, possibly in a way to highlight certain words or to make it easier to read. 
you have some inscriptions in Xiaoping that seem to highlight like the important words. Others seem to do black runes in one word and white in the next, alternating like that. It was definitely a part of what a runestone looked like uh, in the 11th century. So speaking of reading, this is another question that comes up a lot. How many people could read runes at this time? And the answer is, of course, that we don't know. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, at least enough people to make it worth writing something on the stones, rather than just erecting ones that were purely ornamental. They're beautiful in themselves. You could probably get quite a lot across just without the words. And the fact that they're so formulaic also helps, because you know, as a reader, what to expect from a runestone. Uh, it's going to start with a name. That's going to be something about erecting a stone and then another name. Uh, you can see the shine through in runestones that seem to be written by someone who isn't that good at spelling, where words for stone and so on can be written quite weirdly. There's often more care put into getting the names right. Um, in a later episode, I'm going to talk about the really weird inscriptions, which are these so-called non-lexical stones. Uh, they can tell us a lot about how runestones mean something beyond the words. But you have to remember this is still a very oral society. This is not a literal society. It's very likely that people knew whose runestone this was in the general area without being able to read it necessarily. The writing on it is, has a social status function, but it also, of course, if you're traveling, if you're, coming, if you're passing by a farm and you see a runestone, you can actually read whose runestone it is, if you can read runes. This podcast is going to come back to runestones a lot, just not just because I love them so much, uh, but also because there's quite a lot to say about them. But for now, I'm going to finish this episode with the story of one of my favorite runestones. I don't have someone to interview today, so I'm picking the favorite runestone. It has no fancy name, really. Uh, it has a number in the Swedish corpus of runic inscriptions, as all runic inscriptions do in Sweden, and the number is U1011. Uh, the U stands for Upland, uh, and the number 10,011 tells you that it's probably found somewhere in the north of the region, because they're numbered south to north. You'll hear me use these numbers, these signums, uh, from time to time when there's not a kind of set name for a runestone, which is most of them. U1011 is a wonderful runestone in many ways. It has a pretty unusual inscription. Uh, it has pretty cool layout, and it has a fun story after the Viking Age. It's been around, it's seen some things. So, first, the inscription. We're in the middle of the 11th century, mid to late 11th century, uh, in what's now a place called Rospo, uh, northeast of Uppsala. Um, and other people around them are commissioning runestones in memory of their loved ones. But we have this couple, Vigmundur and Afreder, Maybe they don't have any surviving relatives or children. Maybe they've fallen out with their entire family. Maybe they're just very important people. But for whatever reason, they decide to commission a runestone in memory of themselves. Well, mainly in memory of Vigmundur. We know about Vigmundur from this runestone. He's a steerimadur, which literally means he's a steering man. And it means that he's the captain of the ship, and it's probably his own. So he has some money, he has some mercantile power. Uh, he's also generally pretty great with his hands, and they decided to put this on the runestone. 
And this person is covered on two sides, which is not super common in the Viking Age. On one side, which is the largest side, it says, Vigmunder let Hagvastein at sig sjalvan slöggjastermanna. Gud hjälp i sjalvigmunder stirmans. Which means Vigmunder had the stone cut in memory of himself, the most skillful of men. May God help Vigmunder the captain's soul. So you can hear, this is a full inscription on what this one side, starting with this memorial inscription, the mandatory one, then a little bit of information about him, and then a prayer. On the second side, in mirrored runes, which are runes that are back to front, uh, this is also not super common, it happens. It says, Vigmunder och afrider hjokku märki at kvikvansik. Which translates as Vigmunder and Afrider cut the landmark in memory of themselves while alive. Now, if you know Norse grammar, uh, you can hear there's a little grammatical quirk going on here. Kvikvansik, um, which means themselves alive, or translates at that as that, is actually the singular masculine form of this. Uh, so technically, it only refers to Vigmunder. But as it stands, though, where it says they made this monument in memory of, it does make sense to translate them out of themselves. So it would be great if we knew where they erected this really lovely stone. Um, unfortunately, it's been moved. Also a thing that happens to a lot of runestones. Uh, this has a long history of moving around, though. The first time we know it happens is in about 1670, where Olaf Virelius, who is the first professor of what was then called the Antiquities of the Fatherland, uh, that is basically archaeology, philology, language history, that kind of thing, uh, he decides he would quite like this runestone for himself. And Virelius is very important in the history of Old Norse philology and runology, he edited and published the first ever editions and translations of Icelandic sagas. Uh, and he also added woodcuts of runestones to these editions. And these woodcuts are some of the earliest depictions of runestones we have. Uh, and they're often very accurate. So next to a woodcut of U 1011, Verelius writes, This stone I have had moved from Örby in Råsbo Parish, and placed in my garden. So at least he tells us where he got it before he decided that he would like it as a kind of runestone garden gnome, I guess. So it stands in his garden in central Uppsala. Um, and the next thing we know of where U-1011 went is when another professor wants it for his garden. Um, this professor is Olaf Celsius, and we're now in 1727, we know quite specifically, uh, he moves U1011 and two other runestones, U489 and U896, if you're curious, to another professorial garden in central Upsala. <laughs> and Celsius was another early runologist, and you might recognize his last name because he's the uncle of the possibly more famous Anders Celsius, who invented the centigrade scale. I think, just to add, you should... No, that professors in Uppsala these days usually don't steal runestones. Um, I'm not saying they don't want to, but um, they behave slightly better. 
So we now have a little group of three runestones that have been moved and gathered together and stand in Uppsala where people know things about runes and runestones. So in 1867, these three stones are chosen to be sent to Paris for the International Exposition to show off Swedish history. And apparently they were quite popular. They even won a prize. Uh, Only fair, runestones are the best. But then disaster strikes. When they're shipping the stones back to Sweden, 2011, Beemunder and stone is accidentally dropped into the harbour, into the water at the harbour at Lava. And it's too deep for them to retrieve it. So for 30 years, this Viking Age runestone is in the harbour at Lava, somewhere beneath the water. And it's not until they dredge the harbour for some construction works that they find it again. And by this time, no one really remembers what's going on. But they realise that this is not your ordinary rock and ask professors at the Sorbonne what's going on. And apparently someone recalled the exposition, or that at least they could recognise this as a runestone, and they, they eventually managed to get it sent back to Uppsala. Where it is today? It stands in a park uh, next to the main university building. It's a very nice place. It's surrounded by other displaced runestones. So this park is between the main university building and the cathedral. And any runestones throughout the years who, that have been found when rebuilding things in the cathedral or in other parts of the city tend to get moved here. So it's a, it's a wonderful park full of runestones. Hopefully it's now safe um, from grabby professors and muddy waters. And I think that is it for this episode. Don't steal runestones. And in general, just stay ruined. The Runecast is made by me, Maya Beckwell, and is funded by Riksbanken's Jubileumsfond, the Swedish Foundation for Humanities and Social Sciences, and with support from Uppsala Runic Forum at the Department of Scandinavian Languages at Uppsala University. You can find us on Twitter at RunecastPod in one word, and on Uppsala Runic Forum's Facebook page, which is Uppsala Runforum. Think Runeforum, but without the E, Runforum. And just like the consonants, 